All right, well, let me read, and uh, I'll introduce our section to you today. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. And we'll probably take the next uh, Sunday or two to kind of work through that together. But um, I want to start by asking you a question. What is confidence? What's confidence? Feeling secure, trust. Other ideas? It's a, usually, it's a word that we use all the time, but um, what it means becomes very, very important to the argument of what Paul's going to talk to us about here today. So, Wes? Not fearing an outcome. A surety. Um, those are good. Here's, here's my definition, uh, and you guys, you guys all got all over this. Confidence is a feeling of certainty that accompanies a strong trust, reliance, or belief. It's a feeling of certainty that accompanies a strong trust, reliance, or belief. I don't think that's on your notes, so if you're looking for a blank, there's no blank to fill in, sorry. I'll say it again if you want to write it down. A feeling of certainty that accompanies a strong trust, reliance, or belief. Now, just think about just this morning how many things that you could not have done if you didn't have some level of confidence. Uh, how many of you walked to church this morning? Okay, so did the rest of you drive? Okay, now you have to have some confidence, right, before you get behind the, the wheel of a motor vehicle, lest you kill somebody or run over something or crash into a wall or right you, you have to have some confidence in that and that confidence comes because at one point in your life you learned how to drive you studied uh, driving somebody taught you that right and you developed a trust in your ability right to drive a motor vehicle safely um, stop elbowing your spouse some of you are making jokes right now so don't do that um, I uh, anyone watched the World Series last night how many, how many of you, and there are probably some of you in this room, okay, but how many of you would have confidence that you could hit a 99-mile-per-hour fastball? Right? I can't. <laughs> I'd be afraid to stand anywhere near a 99-mile-per-hour <laughs> fastball, right? But, but obviously, professional baseball players get up to the plate, and they don't go, oh, no, I could never do that. They get up there, and they have a confidence. Well, where do they get that confidence? They got that confidence because they studied baseball, they learned, they uh, through experience and training, <clears throat> they got to a place where they said, you know what, I can hit a 99-mile-per-hour fastball, at least some of the time, right? Somebody got hit by, a, it wasn't a fastball, but you know, probably 85 or so miles-per-hour ball, and that's not good. Um, 
think about all the things that we do that we need confidence to do. Right? You need confidence on your job. You need confidence as you're raising your children. You need confidence um, to cook a meal. You need confidence uh, to get up and something silly like getting dressed. You, you had to learn how to do that. You had to have some semblance of this is how it goes and, and I can do this, right? The, you know, I, um, well, my four-year-old gets it most of the time, but not too long ago, he, he had no ability to do that. Confidence is very important. Um, and I want you to think about confidence in two things. There is, what we've been talking about is, is a confidence in things that we do. And that confidence comes through education, through training, through experience, and, and developing a sense that where I say, I trust that I can do this. But there's another type of confidence, and the two are related, and that is a confidence in who we are. And I'll try to, I'll try to connect these two for you, but underneath all of these confidences of what we can do and, and what we can experience and what we're able to accomplish, we begin to develop a confidence about who we are, a confidence about our identity, a confidence that says, this is who I am. And that confidence becomes crucial to what Paul is going to talk to us about today. Okay, So just with that introduction in mind, let's parachute into these verses here today. Okay, Last time we talked about uh, rejoice in the Lord, and how how is it that God can tell us to have a certain emotion, like rejoicing or joy? And uh, we talked about that. Um, so Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, reminding the Philippians as he writes from jail to rejoice in their circumstances, to rejoice in what God is doing uh, in the church and with the gospel in their day. He says to write the same thing, again, is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. We called this a study of Philippians, we call it the epistle of joy, because joy and rejoicing is one of the main themes. This is not the first time he said it, and it won't be the last time that he said it. And now we'll come back to that when we get to chapter 4, verse 1. And then we read this little verse. Beware of the dogs. Now, David Lamanek and I were, were chatting earlier this week. There were actually some dogs that showed up at our front door of the church last week. And um, so we weren't sure if they were going to come back since I was talking about dogs this morning. But anyway, but um, just in case, there you go. Okay. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Now just stop right there. What's the first thing you notice about that verse? He repeats the word three times. When um, when Isaiah sees his vision in Isaiah 6 and, and the seraphs are calling back to each other, holy, 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 what does that repetition do? What, is that, what does it function to do? It's emphasis, right? You know, today, if you want somebody to pay attention to something, you might, you might write it in fluorescent orange spray paint, right? You might underline it. You might... 
Did you do that? Okay. Um, you know, you might underline it or circle it or star it, but, but in, in, the, in the Jewish culture, if you wanted to emphasize something, you would repeat the word multiple times. And so, yeah, the first thing we see is we've got beware, beware, beware. That's Paul's way of saying, I've got something really important to warn you about, and you need to pay attention. Okay, this is really important, and that's one of the Hebraic ways that they would do that. Well, what does he want to draw their attention to? He wants them to be warned about the danger of the dogs, the evil workers, and your Bible probably says something like false circumcision. Is that what it says there? Okay, and literally it says mutilation. That's literally what the word means. It's probably used figuratively here. Um, And we say, well, what is... Who's he talking about, or what is he talking about? I mean, uh, dogs, evil workers, I mean, that could be all, a lot of people. But when he says mutilation, sort of a play on words with the, the idea of circumcision, that points to a Jewish warning. He's talking about Israelites, he's talking about Jews. And actually, if we look down, at uh, his own testimony, verses 4, 5, and 6, we get a little bit of what he's talking about. He says, um, I was circumcised, verse 5, on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. What he's giving is a description of a faithful Israelite. If you were Jewish living in this culture, if you were an Israelite, and, and someone were to ask you, well, what, what do you guys believe? What is your religion about? You would say, well, uh, I was circumcised. That's important. I belong to the nation of Israel. That's important. The tribe that I belong to is important. My obedience to the law is important. And Paul, as you know, was a, a Pharisee, which would have been a, um, a, a teacher, part of the religious leadership in the synagogue. Uh, He was a persecutor of the church because, of course, the church taught a false gospel, a false message about God. And as to righteousness which is found in the law, he was found blameless. Paul pursued and obeyed Jewish law. And those give us a little bit of a hint of what Paul is talking about when he talks about dogs, evil workers, and false circumcision. Um. How many of you know who he's talking about, just from your study of Scripture? Any ideas? The Judaizers. The Judaizers. How many of you guys know who the Judaizers are? Okay, a few of you. So let's, let's talk about this. In Okay, when, when the gospel first went out, Acts 2, the, the church is started, the spirit is given, and missionaries begin to go out taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Okay, that, that's the beginning of the church. And as soon as that happened there was a group of Jewish people that said, yes, Jesus, yes, the gospel, yes, yes, we believe he's the Messiah, yes, we believe he's the promised one of the Old Testament, yes, 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 and and, and they trusted in Jesus. But what they wanted to do was bring their old Jewish suitcases full of old Jewish religious practices and bring them with them with the gospel. In a sense, they wanted to glue together biblical Christianity and Jewish religion. And that group of people that wanted to do that were called the Judaizers. So let's talk about those guys here in a minute. Uh, they likely referred to a group of people known as the Judaizers. 
there were a group of Jewish Christians who taught that obedience to Jewish law must be combined with faith in Christ in order for a person to truly be saved. Okay, so far so good? Now, here, here's... Can we agree that, that Paul's using some pretty strong language here? He says, beware, beware, beware. So he's got our attention. All right, you got our attention, Paul. We, we know you're being serious here. Look at the description. He calls them dogs. I don't know about you, but if that happened around my house, someone would be insulted. Would that, would that be how, would that how it works in your house too? Evil workers. The mutilators. It's like, what? It's, it's a, it's an attack on Judaism. All those words are designed to be a criticism, an attack on Judaism. You say, well, where does the dogs get? Well, Jews were known in this day. You know who? Jews would walk around and they would talk about the Gentiles. And you know what they would call them? Dogs. So Paul turns it around. See, he turns it around. He takes the term that the Jews would call Gentiles and he says, you guys are dogs. He calls them evil workers. This is the nation of Israel. This is God's people. They're evil workers? Really? And then there's that little word, mutilation, which is a criticism of physical circumcision, a criticism of that physical act that identified Jewish people from non-Jewish people. And we say, man, Paul, I mean... I mean, do you think of Paul as basically a nice guy? You know, I mean, we've read and he's a great godly man and he's using some very strong language. So we as the readers read that and we go, whoa, what's the deal? Why is he, why is he so strong? What's the threat? Right? What's the threat? This is the threat. Verse four. Because they put confidence in the flesh. Look at verse three again. I'm sorry, is that verse 4 or 3? Well, I guess it says it in both. Look at verse 3, we'll read both. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put more confidence in the flesh, I far more. So the issue for Paul, the the issue that in a sense has him wrapped around the axle here that that, that is causing him to write this strong language attacking these Judaizers, the, the, the real crucial issue is that these Judaizers are putting confidence in the flesh. That's the issue. We say, well, what does that mean? What's what's that mean? Well, you guys understand, and maybe before I jump into this, the word flesh in your Bible, how many of New American Standard Bible? Okay, put your hands down. How many have an NIV Bible? Okay, a few of you. What does the NIV say, by the way, in, in this verse? Can you read that, Joe, for me real quick? Yeah. For it is we who are the circumcision, we worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Okay. Though I myself have reason for such confidence. Okay, so they use flesh there. Okay. Here's the problem. The word flesh, it's the word sarx in Greek. S-A-R-X would be how you transliterate it. Sarx, um, it means about 18 different things. 
It's one of those words that's very versatile. It's very context-specific. There's not... Uh, those of you that, that have learned a little bit how to do a Bible word study, this is one of those things where, where guys that are brand new to doing word studies will get a word like this wrong very easily. Because you look it up, and you go, oh, wow, it means this, it means that. And you get like eight or ten glosses of what this thing means. And then you go, well... Well, how do you know, how do you know what it means in a given context? And that, and that's the answer. You, you have to figure out which meaning fits best in the context. Sometimes we think about flesh, the, the usual way it's used, um, I shouldn't say usual. One of the ways it's used, uh, in Paul's writings is it describes that, that inward principle of sin that remains on in the life of the believer, right? When, when Paul says in Galatians 5, walk by means of the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, what he's saying is, you will not carry out the desire of that, that, that sin that's still in you, even as a Christian, that inward principle of sin. Uh, you've heard me call it before, the, it's the dead elephant on your back, right? It, it's, the, it's, the, it's the dead old man. You know, the, who you were before Jesus dies when you come to Christ, but his carcass is still strapped to your back. Um, so sometimes flesh means this inward principle of sin that re- remains on in the life of the believer. Sometimes flesh just means your physical body. It's a synonym for soma, which is the word for body. But in this context, what does flesh mean? You can figure it out just by, just by looking at how it's used here. What does flesh mean? Oh, I'm cheating. Don't cheat. There. All right. Did you read that already? Okay. For those of you that didn't read or at least are honest, um, what, what does flesh mean in this context? It's a self-confidence to obedience to the law of what? The Jewish law. That's it. That's it. In this context, flesh is the religious system of Israel. It's the religious system of Israel. So when he says, um, we put no confidence in the flesh, he's talking about true believers now. Okay, Paul says, the true believers, true Christians, do not put confidence in the flesh. By context, what he's saying is, true believers do not put confidence in the religious system of Israel. Do you see that? Do you see how the context tells us that? Okay, well, You almost don't even have to look it up in a dictionary because the context determines that. Context tells you that. So now you can read my little definition here. The flesh in this context refers to the present system of Jewish religion, which included things like your family heritage, following Jewish law, and that, of course, would include circumcision. Okay, that's what flesh means. It's, it's, it's the present system, present in Paul's time, okay, not, not like today, but the present system in Paul's time of the Jewish system of religion. Okay, now, the Judaizers, this is important, the Judaizers were saying that, that we're trusting in and relying upon their own Jewish religion in addition to the gospel in order to be in right relationship with God. I'll say that again. The Judaizers were trusting in their own adherence to the Jewish religious system in addition to their belief in the gospel. And on the basis of both of those things, they were saying, well, God's going to accept me. God's going to allow me to be a part of his family. Now, what's the problem with that? Is there a problem with that, Rich? Doesn't it? Doesn't it? 
They also taught that Gentile believers must adhere to Jewish law, including circumcision, to be true believers. That was what started the controversy. The controversy started when Jewish Christians were saying to Gentile Christians, they need to go get circumcised and adhere to Mosaic law in addition to believing the gospel. Now, hold your place there and turn to Acts chapter 15. Because believe it or not, the first church council met in Jerusalem in Acts 15 to address this issue. Did you know that? You guys heard about the church councils? There's the Council of Nicaea. And I think 325 A.D., there was the Council of Carthage in 497 A.D. Um, Nicaea, they talked about um, uh, the incarnation. That was kind of uh, what was on the table there. You know, what, what, How are we to think about Jesus, the Son of God? Um, the Council of Carthage in 497, 397, that's where they, um, uh, they, they finalize, in essence, the, the recognition of the New Testament canon at Carthage there in 397. But the, the first council was in Jerusalem in Acts 15. And, and look at this. See if this sounds familiar. Acts 15, verse 1. And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What does that sound like? That's, that's the Judaizers, right? You can't be saved unless you're circumcised. Now, when Paul and Barnabas had a great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this. So they all get congregate at, at Jerusalem. And being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both uh, Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And then when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done. But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed... Interesting. So these are Jewish Pharisees who have believed in Jesus, okay? They stood up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them, meaning the Gentile Christians, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by, say it, by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe, key verse, Acts 15.11, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, period. When the Reformers rediscovered this doctrine in the 16th century, they were fond of saying that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. The great solas, as they're called in in Latin, of the Reformation. And um, that's the determination of the count. You can go on and read the rest of the story in terms of what they did in terms to implement that. But that was it. They met 
They said, nope, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And to add things beyond that is wrong. Okay? So go back to Philippians. And look at Paul's rebuttal to this. Look at Paul's rebuttal to the dogs, to the evil workers, to the false circumcision who put confidence in the flesh. They put confidence in things like adherence to Jewish law, their family history, that they're descendants of Abraham, that they were circumcised, all this stuff. Paul says that's not what constitutes a true believer. What constitutes a true believer? He's going to tell us here. Number one, they are of the true circumcision. The true circumcision. And... Okay, uh, let's let's pull the car over for a minute and talk about something that probably makes some of you uncomfortable. Let's talk about circumcision for a minute. Um, circumcision was a physical outward act done to Jewish boys on the eighth day following their birth that signified their identification as a Jewish person, as an Israelite. That's what it was. And it was an outward physical sign that they were part of the covenant people, the covenant nation of Israel. That's what it was. And that's all it was designed to do. But over time, what happened was uh, those Jewish people, instead of saying, we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our might. Right? That's that's the essence of Judaism, according to Deuteronomy 6, 4, the, the great Shema passage, right? Instead of loving God with all their heart, all their soul, all their might, they began to put confidence not in God, not in loving Him, not in trusting Him. Their confidence shifted from the heart issues of loving God and trusting Him to these external signs of their religion. Do you see that? So that circumcision, instead of just being an outward act that signified, hey, this is somebody that loves God, it became, in essence, something that they said, well, see, since I've been circumcised, me and God are, are on good terms. The outward act became the, the object of their confidence instead of the inward reality of their faith. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, a footnote. This is everywhere. Every other religious system in the world puts confidence in things like this. Okay, so keep that thought in mind. We'll come back to it in a moment. You don't need to turn there, but listen, listen Paul clarifies this also in Romans because the essence of circumcision was an outward sign of what was supposed to be an inward reality. That's what it was supposed to do. It's kind of like baptism in 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 Christianity, baptism has no salvific effect. It doesn't save you. It doesn't regenerate you. It doesn't redeem you. It's an outward act which is designed to illustrate an inward reality. You have trusted in Jesus Christ and your Lord and Savior. That's what it's supposed to be. But Paul has to remind these, these new Jewish Christians, uh, circumcision in terms of the act is not really the issue. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 2, verse 29. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. You can look it up on your own. It says... But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision, meaning the one that matters, is a circumcision of the heart 
by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul clarifies with the, the, the same, a similar group of people in his letter to the Roman Christians that, you know what, the external sign of circumcision is not the big issue. The issue is your heart. Are you trusting God by faith in the heart? Are you by the Spirit walking with God? That's the issue. The issue is not the external. The issue is the internal. So he says a true believer is one who experiences what we call the true circumcision, the way he uses it in in Philippians, and that is an inward, spirit-produced heart change. And, And understood in that definition, true circumcision is what? It's regeneration. It's that change of heart when you trust in Christ and he saves you. That's what really matters is that changed heart, not not some external physical sign. The second thing he points us to in verse 3, what is a true believer? Is that they worship by means of the Holy Spirit. Literally, the, the word is to serve by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we're serving, if we're worshiping by means of the Holy Spirit, who's the one really working? The Holy Spirit is. Thirdly, They glory in Christ. Verse 3, they glory in Christ Jesus. Literally the word glory, there's there's a normal word for glory, um, uh, doxa in in Greek, kavod in Hebrew. That's not the normal word for glory here. It's the word to be proud or to boast. Do you see this coming together? It's not about an external sign. It's about a heart change. It's not about your own works. It's about a spirit, his spirit that works through you. It's not about saying, look at all the things that I've done. It's that we boast in what Christ has done for us. And because those three things are true, we put no confidence in Jewish external religion. Paul, talking to the Philippians, he says, it's about a heart change, it's about the Spirit working in you, it's about boasting and having confidence in what Jesus has done, not what you have done, and therefore we do not put stock in the Jewish religious system which teaches a self-righteousness. Now, are you with me on this? Are you with me? Okay. So, so what's the danger then? Why, why is this such a big deal? What makes confidence in Jewish religion fatal? What makes confidence in Jewish religion fatal? Turn. It is idolatry, you're right. Look at Romans chapter 3 with me. Look at Romans chapter 3. I will have you turn there. Romans chapter 3, a very similar context. We just read Romans chapter 2 where he's talking about true circumcision, false circumcision, and that's about a heart issue, right? So he's talking to a very similar audience of of largely Jewish Christians, and he says this in these wonderful, wonderful words in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Listen, 
God's Mosaic law, the law of the Old Testament, was never given as a means to salvation. That was something the Jews misunderstood. Old Testament law was never given as a means for salvation. According to this verse, it was designed to show the Jews their need for God's salvation. Not that they could somehow gain it by following the law. Look at what he says in verse 20. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You want the bottom line? You can try your hardest. You can find the smartest, most talented, most gifted, most religious person in the world who spends their whole life, whatever that looks like to you, who spends their whole life pursuing obedience to this law, and they will do nothing but fail, ultimately. Because the law was not designed as a means of salvation. The law was designed to show us our need for God's salvation. He says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is apart from the law. You can't earn your way to God. You can't, you can't say, well, I kept all of these things and therefore I merit salvation. Nobody can do that. You say, well, I'm not sure. You know, I've kept, I've had people tell me before, I've kept all the Ten Commandments. I've never broken any of them. Really? Well, good for you. I didn't do that well. (laughs) What's the standard? Last verse of Matthew chapter 5. You are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How'd you do? And other than the occasional junior high student, most people say, no, I'm not perfect, right? So what is the gospel about? The gospel, look at verse 21 again, is about the righteousness of God, Christ's righteousness coming to we who put our faith and trust in him, as it says there, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. The gospel, true salvation, comes when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and receive his righteousness, not try to earn our own, right? So what what makes confidence in Jewish religion fatal? It kills the gospel. It kills the gospel. Because, look at this, the Bible declares that any trust, reliance, faith, or confidence in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ alone, especially self-reliance, is a false gospel. We, Paul wrote a whole book about this problem. It's called the Epistle of the, uh, the Letter to the Galatians. The book of Galatians is all about what we're talking about. And he starts off in Galatians chapter 1, he says, Galatians, who has bewitched you? I, I, am, I am amazed that you are so quick to turn away from the faith that you've received to another gospel. And he says two times, if anyone comes to you, even an angel comes to you and teaches to you another gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. 
I'm going to say this again because this is so important. Now, the Bible declares that any trust, any reliance, any faith, any confidence in anything or any other, anyone other than Jesus Christ alone, especially self-reliance, is a false gospel. Put it this way. Christ plus anything equals a false gospel. That's for you math people in the room. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand all other ground. You see that? We sing that all the time. What we're saying is Jesus alone, Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground. It's the same thing. It's in Christ alone. Now, you may be thinking, you know what, that's okay, Keith, because um, I don't struggle with uh, circumcision and keeping Jewish law. I'm not there. But we have today modern dogs. Modern dogs. Contemporary dogs. 21st century dogs. How do those work? They come in a religious form that go like this. Good works or achievements of any kind that are deemed meritorious in a religious framework and reflect a trust in self. Well, what is that? Islam believes that because Islam is about submission to Allah and his law. The Mormon church believes that because they believe that you have to believe in Jesus, be baptized, and do good works to be saved. Probably the largest religious system that teaches this is the Roman Catholic Church that teaches that faith alone, uh, faith in Jesus is important, absolutely, but you have to be baptized. You have to do good works. And if you commit venial sin or mortal sin, you have to go to confession and then do works of satisfaction to gain your salvation back. Um, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, at least the, the, the flavor of Buddhism that actually sort of believes in gods. Original Buddhism, there was no gods. You understand that? Um, Taoism, animism. Um, do, look at the religions of the world. They, they have one common denominator. And you know what it is? You have to do something to be okay. You have to do some work. You have to do some act. You have to do some ritual. You have to do some sacrifice. And this gets into the church. Christ plus anything is a false gospel. The Bible teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's all over the place. I, I've told you before, um, Alan and I are studying comparative religions in, in his one of his homeschool classes this year. It's, it's, it's the same song, different verse. Every religion. There's something you have to do to appease the gods. There's something you have to do to attain enlightenment. There's something you have to do to be nirvana. There's, there's something you have to do. 
There's no foreign righteousness. There's no righteousness not my own. There's not a recognition that I cannot merit my way to God. My only hope is if he does it for me. But maybe more to the point, there are non-religious modern dogs, and I think these are more dangerous for us. I'll give you an example. Uh, and I'll, I'll change the details just to honor the person. Um, I talked to a man uh, last year and professing believer. They would, they would articulate the gospel just as clear as you and I could. And um, lots of anxiety, depression, busyness, crazy schedule, and um, and I'm talking to this guy about his schedule because he doesn't have time to worship. He doesn't have time to read his Bible. He doesn't have time to pray. He doesn't have time to lead his family. He doesn't have time to do any of the other spiritual disciplines. He doesn't have time to worship. He doesn't have time to serve Christ. He doesn't have time to minister. And I'm scratching my head because I said, well, I, I, I thought you said that you're a Christian. I mean, help me understand and as, it, as I talked to him, it's, it's, a, it's this job that he has. And he works crazy long hours. And I think, well, you know, some, sometimes that's imposed on you. But as I talked to him, I thought, he's asking for it. He's asking for these long hours. He's asking for extra responsibility. He's asking for all these things. And okay, well, so help me understand. What it came down to was, he said, I have to have that reputation in my workplace. The hard worker, the one that goes the extra mile, the one that always does it right. You may not be able to rely on anybody else, but you can rely on me. And as I talked to him about that, you know what I thought? That's a false gospel. Because, remember what I told you? There's a confidence in things that we do. But if we're not careful, oftentimes a confidence in the things that we do slide over into this other realm called a confidence in who I am. And this person's identity was not a believer in Jesus Christ. This person's identity was a self-confidence in being a reliable, good worker in the eyes of his bosses. You say, well, what's wrong with being a hard worker, Keith? Hard work, yes, hard work is good. We should be responsible. We should work hard. Those are, those are gospel virtues. That's good. But here's the trick. He was neglecting everything else in his life that was gospel related for that false God. So think about this. Yes, Mr. Pearson. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I see yep. quickly, yes. Quickly the dogs in my own life yes. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, and and that's that's a that's a great example. I think we can all relate to. Yeah. 
There are dogs in our hearts. Absolutely. But here, we're out of time, but just, I put some stuff up here for you to think about. I gave you the example of reputation. Think about what these characteristics teach us about where our confidence is, okay? When we make comparisons with other people. When we get defensive about something that we do. When we boast in achievements or our status as in some realm. In our roles, in our identity, in our health. You start thinking about it and you think, all of these things reveal where is our confidence really. And like I said, you may not struggle with Mosaic law and circumcision, but if our confidence at the end of the day is not in Jesus Christ alone, it may be in all sorts of other good things, but if it is Christ plus something else, it is a false gospel. I appreciate Mr. Pearson's honesty because I think, I think we deal with this a lot more than we'd like to admit. One more thing and we'll quit here. The pattern of what we regularly rely on for momentary confidence, and by that I mean in the moment, in the day by day, the, the, the milieu of life, the pattern of what we regularly rely on for momentary confidence and daily well-being usually reveals the object of our ultimate faith and trust. I'll leave you to think about that this week, but may God give us the grace to do that. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. That's absolutely right on. Very well said. That's right, yeah, and, and that's where we think, you know, it's Christ alone. Right. He was just saying that instead of looking at the things that we do today to say, yeah, that, that's, that's what Christianity is, we need to look back to that, that initial trust in Christ, right? That we're not, we're not putting confidence in, in a sense, the effects of our salvation. We're putting confidence in the Christ of our salvation. So, very good point. Father, thank you for this time and your word. And um, Father, would you expose the dogs in our hearts? Uh, would you... Show us how our confidence, even as a Christian, sometimes will slide toward confidence in other things. Father, Paul uses strong language to exhort the Judaizers. And we would be wise to take seriously uh, his warning to make sure that there are no seeds of that false doctrine in our hearts today. So, Father, would you give us insight? Would you give us wisdom? Would you inspect and examine our hearts? And how we pray that our trust and our confidence would be in Jesus Christ alone. We pray in his name. Amen.